Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Another Progressive Podcast. I'm your host, Max Deutsch. If it's your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. If you're a returning customer, welcome back. This episode uh, is super important. We're talking about the most fundamental right, the most f- the basic core tenets of democracy, and that's voting and fair elections. So I had the chance to speak this week with Emily Levy. Emily has an, been an activist for over 50 years, has been working in election security since 2004, and is a recognized leader in the election security movement. And this past year, in January 2020, she founded Scrutineers.org, a fast-growing online community for, for people who want to help make our elections fair, secure, and accessible. She goes into detail in all of this in our conversation. Let's check it out. Take a listen. It's so, so important. All right. Hi, Emily. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, why don't we start just in kind of introduce yourself, your, what your work has been, what you're doing now with Scrutineers, and yeah, just, just go ahead. Sure. Thank you, Max, so much for having me. Um, So I have been involved in election protection work since the 2004 election, when I volunteered with a group that was then called the Election Protection Coalition in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I I lived in California, I've lived in California all this time, but I I flew down to Albuquerque to to help there. And after watching a lot of people get turned away at the polls and, you know, not being allowed to vote when they should have been and all kinds of mess there, I really wanted to get involved more. I really, my gut said the presidential election had been stolen and I didn't know what to do about it. And got connected with a project that was investigating, doing a a statistical analysis of the presidential election in Ohio in 2004 on a precinct level, so really, really granular level. And I got involved in helping with that project, even though I didn't have very much experience with elections at the time, but I had experience running projects, and so I was able to to be helpful. And, And Ohio, as you're too young to remember, um, that year was the last state to have the election results come in and whichever way Ohio's electoral votes went would determine whether Bush got a second term or John Kerry was president. So it was, you know, was one of those all eyes on Ohio kind of things. And um, Since then, I've been involved in election protection projects, including lawsuits, investigations, election monitoring, community organizing, all kinds of things in projects in a a bunch of different states. And this year, founded a new organization called scrutineers.org, which is to help people who want to get involved in protecting the elections learn more about the issues and find out what they can do that matches their location and their skill set and their interests and how much time they have available and things like that. Cool. So can you talk a bit about the scrutineers? I mean, you sort of just some of the, if anyone's listening who wants to, is interested in scrutineers, you know, make your pitch for scrutineers, what, what you do, some of the different ways people can get involved. Okay, so so it's an online community. It's a membership site. There, if you go to scrutineers.org, you will see a basic description of, of what it is, but you don't see much until you actually join. And then once you join, there's a lot inside. We have 
recorded trainings about different election protection protection methods that that you can do in your community and we have small groups on that that focus on different projects and also a small group for each state though not all of them have people in them we, we're like set up to have them but we don't have people from all the states yet um, and then we do live trainings as well we've got discussion boards so people can ask their questions and some processes to kind of help you figure out what what form of election protection work makes the most sense for you either as an individual or a small organization or a group of friends or whatever kind of what are the things that you can do that can help make sure people get to vote and that the votes are counted accurately great so you spoke then about i mean you've been you started this now because i think you know voter security and election security has become a big issue since 2016 but you've been doing this since 2004 you said so summer what are kind of the what, are, what have been the issues in election secure, security voting security that we didn't know about or that we might even still not know about so one of the things i think that's a really common misconception now is that the problems with election security are about russian interference or maybe russian and other countries interference in our elections and Certainly, there are problems with that, and we don't even know the extent of them because one of the issues with the way that we run elections in the United States now is that votes are counted by computers. So even if you vote on a paper ballot, that paper ballot is fed into a scanner and it's counted by software. And as I think your generation is is more aware of than mine is software can be programmed to do just about anything right so so we don't have a trustworthy method of counting our votes because it's software based and the software can be programmed to miscount it can be programmed to drop votes it can be programmed to flip votes all kinds of things like that and so so we're not only worried about interference from people in other countries, but also from people in the United States and even in election offices who have access to the software or and in the, the voting the machine vendor organizations, the companies that sell the voting equipment to our local governments and state governments um, that are have there's a lot of um, partisanship among those voting voting machine vendors um, they're very heavily republican they um, have often interests in elections going a certain way and they absolutely have access to make sure that those elections go the way they want them to yeah so do i mean what are some of the i mean other examples of like things you found of this happening that you found do, in your work so one of the issues is that that the kind that electronic election manipulation does not necessarily produce much evidence so a lot of times if you read if you read um news stories closely about election security they will often say no there was no evidence found that any votes were changed someone not paying really close attention to my to that might understand that to say no votes were changed, but that's not what it says at all. No evidence was found raises the question, did anybody look for it? And usually the answer is no. And the other thing is, is it possible that it was changed without producing evidence? And the answer to that is generally yes. So, uh, so 
we also run into this catch-22 situation all the time where we're, we're told you can't challenge this election because you don't have proof that anything went wrong. And then we say, okay, give us these documents, which we think might be able to prove it. And they'll say, no, we can't give you those. So it's like you, they withhold the proof and then tell us we can't challenge an election because we don't have the proof. So that is very, very challenging um, landscape for doing this kind of work. One thing that I think is, is absolutely shocking that almost no one knows about and we've been trying to get the story out about this for a few years is um, it was discovered by a brilliant computer programmer and data analyst named Benny Smith in, in Memphis, Tennessee several years ago that the the software that runs most of the voting systems in the in the United States actually has a built-in feature that allows an election department to run a weighted election. And what I mean by a weighted election is not all votes count as one vote. Some people's votes could be counted as half a vote or one and a half votes. And what they what the vendors say about this, about why they've built this into the system is because some places um, there are elections like the example that's always used, and I don't know if it's the only situation where this occurs, is in certain land use related elections. The way the law is written, the more land people have, the more votes they get about um, land use regulation or taxation or something. So it's, it's an obscure kind of election that almost never happens. And what Benny Smith says is it's kind of like saying some cars are used in movies where they need to explode. So we're going to build in the option of cars exploding into every car. It's like it makes that much sense, right? So it's, it's a hugely shocking thing. It is a feature that's still in the election systems, even though it's been discovered and exposed. And um, what it allows is the the possibility that people who have access to the internal workings of the voting systems could be either for their own interest or for clients who are paying them to do it, actually activating this feature so that um, not all votes are counted as one vote. And that that's not even a hack or a rig, that's a feature built into the system. Right, that's crazy. It is really crazy. Yeah. Why, why do you think we that like that hasn't made the you know big news like that I, I feel like that should be you heard it all here folks on another progressive podcast why isn't you know new york times talking about it so well it's a really good question and i would like to know the answer to that question <laughs> so it was covered by bloomberg business they did a both a video and a big cover story on it a few years ago you know kind of after after the discovery was made and exposed and um, it should have been picked up everywhere and I think that that why it is why it wasn't is probably a combination of reasons one is that the media is is corporate run you know there's there's a lot of resistance to exposing things like this there is um, on that neither of the major parties want to talk about about election security. Um, the Democratic Party 
regularly says they don't want people to, you know, when we talk to people kind of behind the scenes, they don't, they want to make sure that everybody tests the election results because if they don't, they won't vote. And so they've done a fair amount to cover it up. The Republicans are implicated in a lot of it and have done a fair amount to cover it up. And, I, and the Democrats, I think, are, are implicated in some of it too. It's not, it's not a one-sided thing. Um, and then the other thing is that it's, it's technical and hard to understand. So I think those are the main reasons that it hasn't been exposed. That's, yeah, that's really crazy. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it's Democrat Republicans. This is not, you know, there's very often, I think, especially nowadays or, you know, in the current election discussion, it's the Republicans are the ones covering it up and Democrats are kind of, you know, the totally innocent ones, you know, fighting for election security. But there, there is, you know, there are actors on both sides who are, have an interest in covering some of these things up. Which I just think is good to know. There, I think that's true. And I think um, what I see happening this year that really concerns me is we've got on the Republican side, the president saying we can't trust um, vote by mail elections. We can't trust those ballots to be real and the election is going to be stolen. And if that were really true, if he really had that concern, there are things that we can do, and I don't mean bringing in thugs, but I mean bringing in actual observers to make sure that the process is safe. So if he really believed it was unsafe, it could be made safe, and he, he has the ability to see to it that that happens. The, the Democrats, on the other hand, are responding to that in this way that to me kind of sounds like a six-year-old having an argument where it's like one person says, yes, you are. And they just say, no, I'm not, you know, like without even thinking about it, the Democrats seem to be responding in this way of your accusations about mail-in voting are wrong. We can trust the election system. And that's not true either. It needs to be protected. It needs to be, we need to have all eyes on the process as much as we can, especially because in between the voters and the vote counts are these computers that we really can't trust. So I would like to see both parties emphasizing the need for transparency in the process so that we, we know who really won elections, not just the presidential election, but all the races on the ballots everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's really important. So I want to get, before we get into COVID, because there's definitely a lot to talk about how things have changed in the past six months, just sort of looking at, and you've sort of spoken a bit about it, um, in terms of, you know, the, the, someone potentially changing results or, you know, changing the weighting of how things are. So who are the actors that kind of can play into things and are sort of actually affecting or, you know, could potentially be changing results? So people who have access to the system, either because they work for a voting system vendor, they work for an elections department, or they know how to hack into the system are the, the, main, the main people that we would be concerned about. Um, again, before getting into COVID, looking at also, because I know Scrutineers does work around sort of voter suppression, uh, sort of the history of that. And so how does, um, is voter suppression, is it a kind of a separate issue from this? Is it, how does it play into all this? What is sort of your work well, on voter suppression been? Great question. And I really see voter suppression as being, it happens in a lot of different ways. So there's the, there's the things like announcing that, like giving out wrong information about when election day is or how you can vote. 
to keep people from being able to vote. There's purging people from the voter rolls. In other words, knocking them off the list of people who are registered to vote. And that has happened to millions and millions of voters um, this year or if, you know, in the run up to this election. Um, that's a method of voter suppression. And so there, there are all kinds of things like making it harder to get your vote by mail ballot having not enough machines in voting machines or the machine, the electronic poll books that are used to check in voters at the polling place in many places, having not enough machines creates long lines and people can't necessarily wait for hours and hours to vote. So, so that has um, a suppressive effect on the vote. It's, I also see it as a form of voter suppression to have votes not being counted by that equipment. So people might be allowed to vote in that, but that can be kind of a, um, like a placebo if your votes aren't counted. But we'll just let you think that you're, that you're voting, right. but we're not really going to count your votes. Yeah, so I also know then uh, in terms of voter suppression, the discussion of, you know, use, using voter suppression as a way to, you know, prevent, you know, Black Black people, people of color from voting. Some, what are some of the ways you've seen that play out recently? That's absolutely a target. And Black communities, to some extent, Latino communities, and to some extent, Native American communities, student communities. Those are kind of the four main targets of most voter suppression efforts. So, so I'm going to actually tell you another bit of a story from Benny Smith in Memphis, Tennessee, who discovered that weighted election um, feature that I told you about. He, um, he also discovered a few years ago that there in black precincts in Memphis, Tennessee, in a particular election, there were 40% of the votes disappeared between the time they, the polls closed on election night and the time the election results for those communities were announced. The same pattern did not exist in nearby white communities. These were precincts in black neighborhoods in Memphis. And when he discovered that and made it public, the election official ended up suddenly retiring early. And an interesting thing happened after that. Memphis is, is a majority democratic city. It's about 50% African-American, about 50% white. But in election after election, they kept invite, they kept electing these slates of white Republican men. After that discovery was made and that election official left in the next election, it was Democratic black women that got elected like a dozen of them in, in county or city city races. So um, the way that he discovered that problem of the votes disappearing. I'd like to talk about for a minute if that's okay with you because oh. it's a method of protecting elections that is really easy even for somebody who only has a tiny bit of time to donate. Um, it's, a, it's a really easy thing to participate in. So at the end of election night when the polls are being closed down and the poll workers are finishing up you know they're like kind of doing that poll, 
the close of polls duties that they have. In most states, one of those duties is to print out what's called a poll tape from each machine. It looks like a cash register receipt and it lists on it every race that was on the ballot and how many votes were cast for what candidate or in the case of a ballot question, yes or no, um, for each of those races on that machine. In most states, they're required to post those so people can see them from outside the polling place. So either on the outside of the door or facing out the window, taped onto the window. And what Benny Smith had done actually was um, photographed those poll tapes and, com and compared the numbers on those tapes to the numbers that the county later announced were the totals for those precincts. Those numbers should absolutely be the same, but in this case, 40% of the vote had disappeared. The number was 40% smaller. So, um, so that's something that, that everyone can do. And there's actually two different organizations that are coordinating projects to get people to either photograph or videotape poll tapes, upload them online, and then either the same person or a different person can compare the numbers on those poll tapes to the numbers that are announced later. And it, it's one of the ways that we can find out if there has been manipulation, including it's one of the few ways to find out whether to figure out whether that um, weighted election feature is running. So it's a pretty yeah. simple thing. You know, all you have yeah. to be able to do is show up at a polling place or you could go drive around to a few of them, take pictures or videotapes, and then look up the corresponding numbers online a while later. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that. That's really important. Everyone should know that. Everyone should, you know, at least, you know, try and keep track of that and do that. Uh, so, I mean, is this something that, you know, you think just from your opinion is happening in other places also this, that same practice? You the weighted elections? Yeah, or just so you know, uh, you know, votes disappearing, things like that. I think that we don't have enough people checking to know. You know, right. like we have, it's that pro that that problem that we have of getting access to evidence is really really tricky. And then we also have the issue of just not enough people around the country looking for it. Um, so I don't know. I do know of other places where there's been reports of the the numbers on the poll tapes not matching the totals that have that have been that were announced later but i don't know the specifics all right so offhand what 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 are we lacking in the efforts to get in transparency sort of you know what what is blocking uh some you know getting this information Does that makes sense um getting which information uh in terms of, I mean, you, you mentioned just getting evidence. So sort of, you know, what, what are some of you know, the obstacles getting that evidence? So obstacles, so some of it is there's like, there's evidence that doesn't exist because it's, you know, inside the computers and there's often, I believe that it, the number is in the millions of lines of code running these machines. So even if somebody were to get access to the, the code, the likelihood that they'd be able to figure out what programming was in there that was a problem is slim and the and um, malicious programming inside a computerized voting system can actually be created in a way that one of its instructions is after running this exploit, delete these lines of code. So even if you went in afterwards and looked, the code would no longer be there. So, so then beyond that, we have the, that the vendors, um, claim that the that information the computer code and some other um, information that they have is proprietary that it belongs to them and that it's not public and that's really a problem in a public voting system right we, there should not be proprietary information that belongs to a private company and that even the 
the local governments running the elections can't see. Yeah. Then we have um, failure to abide by public records laws in some places. So there's the Freedom of Information Act says that that people have the right to get certain to get documents that are public information that are held by the government. And there's a process that you can go through that's not that complicated to request records and you should get them. But sometimes what happens is they just don't ever process the requests. Sometimes what happens is they say, well, you can have these records, but we're going to charge you a huge amount for them. Sometimes they go the other way and they'll say, sure, we'll give you what you want and 30,000 pages of other stuff and good luck sorting through it all. So there, there's, there's problems like that. And then another issue that I think is important is that there's a very short time frame between the, the polls closing election night and the certification of the election. And it's very hard, if not impossible, to get results changed after certification. And it takes time to do that investigation and that analysis of what happened in the election. It's, it's difficult to get the records in time to do that. Like, even if you can get them, it's hard to get them and analyze them in the short time frame that we've got. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's probably on purpose also, I would assume that, uh, you know, partially is, you know, they don't, they don't want people checking uh, that. Yeah. So it feels like that. And when I actually think about it, it's like, okay, on purpose by whom? Is it the people that wrote the laws controlling the release of information? Is it the workers in the elections office? Is it like, is, so it's hard to know because everybody's kind of got their own motivations. Right. And I mean, some of it's just that to try to, when you think about what's happening in an elections department or elect board of elections right after an election, they are incredibly busy. And it's a little bit understandable why their highest priority might not be responding to a public records request because they're in the process, because they're doing all the other processes they have to do to figure out who won the elections. Right. That makes sense. So I want to, I guess, then move now to kind of the big thing, which is this, this past year, uh, this is kind of a very broad, you know, just sort of question, but sort of what, what's been happening with COVID, you know, with what happened with the primaries, what do we expect in November, you know, what, just, what is your, your opinion, your take on all that's been happening? Yeah, so the, I mean, that's the, a thing that we could talk about for a week, but we'll just talk about it in broad terms and then see what's interesting to, to delve into. For quite a while, the election protection movement that I'm part of, uh, most of us have been honestly pretty um pretty uncomfortable with vote by mail because the simply in simplest terms the chain of custody is of the the ballots is really hard to follow when they are coming from all different places coming in all different ways traveling through the post office you know being carried by letter carriers be, all that that has to happen it's a lot harder to make sure that they don't get rerouted or anything like that. And so it was, it's been kind of tricky that it was clear pretty soon into, you know, pretty early on rather in the COVID pandemic in the United States that we were going to have to depend really heavily on voting by mail this year. And so one of the things that scrutineers did at the very beginning of this um, early in the year was to write a letter and send it out. I think we, we emailed it to something like 4,000 local election officials around the country one at a time um, 
saying to them, we understand you're going to need to be moving to a largely vote by mail system. And it's really important to take election security concerns into into consideration as you're doing this. And that means a few things. One is there has to also be an option for people to vote in person. And then we talked about some of what the best practices are for paying attention to election security when in a vote by mail system. Um, we didn't get very much response. And what we really wanted to do was just raise the questions and get them to talk about them. So not getting, we weren't, we weren't really going for response. So not getting a lot of response doesn't indicate that we weren't heard. Um, we had a number of, of other leaders and organizations sign on to that letter. So it didn't just come from us, but um, so then what happened is that gradually primaries started happening in different states and there, it was like a different version of a mess everywhere. You know, I think that some of them have gotten more coverage than others. Like there was a lot of attention on Wisconsin because the, the, there were a bunch of issues about that election that kept going back and forth about what the decision was. Like one, one government body would make a decision and then a court would overrule it and then somebody else would challenge it and then a court would overrule that. So it wasn't really clear things like, um, one of the big issues was could people like what was the deadline for turning in vote by mail ballots and one of the things that's been a huge problem in state after state is people not receiving their ballots to vote at home and that's a major concern that i have for the general election uh, because if you need to vote at home to stay safe from covid but you don't get your ballot then what do you do right yeah, it's, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, so what do you, what are then some, I guess, what, what are some things maybe that, that you know, have worked? Is, is there anything that, that you've seen has worked the past, uh, you know, I guess over the summer when the primaries were happening that you think, you know, we should be paying more attention to? Um, that's a great question and no one has ever asked me that before. So one of the things that I think has been really important is states relaxing their requirements about who can do what's called absentee voting in some places and vote by mail in other places. So in some states, there are requirements like you have to, you have to have a disability, for example. And there was a lawsuit in Texas trying to get um, vulnerability to COVID-19 considered to be a disability for the purposes of being able to vote by mail and that, uh, that lost. So in Texas, you can't just get a vote by mail ballot just because you want one. So in some states, there are really, you have to meet the requirements to have a particular excuse to vote by mail. In some places, there are requirements that you have to have your vote by mail ballot witnessed or even notarized. So imagine that you're somebody who is in a really vulnerable group to COVID. You've been isolating at home for months. And in order to vote, you have to be around other people so that they can witness you signing or you have to go to a notary. And I believe there's even one state where there's a limit to how many ballots each notary is allowed to notarize. And it's a small limit. Like, I, I don't want to say the number because I don't have it in my head, but it, 
it's it's a number that's small enough that there's no way that the number of people who would need their bat ballots notarized would be able to get them notarized. So some states have been either voluntarily or as a result of court actions um, softening those rules so that people who want to vote by mail can. So that's one thing that I think is really important. Um, another thing I think is important is communities installing secure ballot drop boxes um, so that people can get their ballot by mail, fill it out at home or on the street if that's where they live. And, um, and then rather than mailing it back, putting it into a ballot drop box. So that reduces the burden on the postal service and it also um, reduces the, the, the possibility that your ballot won't arrive in time if you mail it back. So um, what my colleagues and I are primarily recommending now for the best way to vote, I think that's important to talk about is, um, if you can vote in person and if you have early voting, we recommend voting early and in person. If that's if those, that combination of things aren't an aren't an option for you either because of disability or fear of COVID or early voting isn't available, um, the next best thing is to vote by mail. Request your ballot as early as you can, return it immediately, and return it dropping it off in person in a drop box or wherever you're allowed to drop it off and that varies from community to community um, so not to trust it to the mails when it's headed back to the elections department or elections board and then the last thing would be to vote in person on election day and that's just because we expect the lines to be really long and um, in some places it there may be people out there intimidating voters and that kind of thing. So that's the order that I would recommend those things in. Right. In, in the sort of vote by mail process, those are, how are those votes counted? Do we, are, are, the, are the same problems in terms of the, the, you know, equipment or hardware or is that? Yes, they're data? still counted by, by scanners. They're still fed into scanners for counting and those are run by software. Interesting. Okay. So, so there's really seems to be no way to avoid is that is this like a universal like everywhere that elections you know all polling places have these kind of faulty or not or not faulty but uh, problematic uh, voting machines? I hear that there are a few small towns in Alaska that are now counting votes by hand, and um, hopefully there will be more in the future. You know, like that 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 really needs to be the direction that we head is to getting human beings to count the votes, and I think. Um, people will say, oh, there's too many, there's just too many ballots. We can't do that. But in the places, you know, or in big cities, we can't do that. But in big cities, there are also more people available to count votes. I'd really like to see something like jury duty, you know, where people get called up to do it and get paid to do it. And it's just part of our civic responsibilities to once in a while help count the votes. That's interesting. Yeah. So that would, yeah. I mean, what is, is, is is voting or counting uh, like by, you know, the physical ballots, is that the only way or in your mind to kind of fix things or are there other kind of policy recommendations or changes of ways that we can make the elections more secure? <clears throat> there are a lot of things that can be done. And after this election, I think the um, 
our attention will turn to some of those legislative changes. One of the things that's really interesting about how elections work in the United States is for the most part, they're run by states. The federal government can only make laws about federal elections. So elections where there's at least one federal race on the ballot, either president or Senate or Congress. Um, and so election reform has to happen both at the state level and at the federal level. So that's, that's an important thing. Um, there are ways, there are methods that we can actually figure out what, how people actually voted, um, even when, even with these election counting, vote counting systems that we've been talking about being in use. And so there, there are some public oversight options that we could be using better than we are. And I'm happy to talk about them if, you, if you'd like me yeah, to. Yeah, I'd like to hear about those. So there are basically two different ways that people vote. They either vote on a paper ballot, and like we've already talked about, that could be at the polls or at home, or they vote on a voting machine of some kind, usually a touchscreen machine. And um, the, the newer generation of paper ballot voting systems use a new technology for scanning that's different from what the older systems use. The older systems used um, optical scan technology and the newer systems use digital scan technology. The difference is that the digital, with the digital scanners, every time a ballot is fed in, the scanner takes a digital image of that ballot and then it actually counts the votes that are on the image, not the votes that are on the paper ballot. So why is that important for public oversight? Well, we've talked about how it's hard to get public records sometimes. And one of the kinds of public records it's pretty much impossible to get is the paper ballot. So, cause we've thought like we, people will say, oh, this paper ballot system is safer because if you don't trust the machine count, you can count the paper ballots. And then we say, fine, let us count the paper ballots. And they'll say, no, you can't have them because you might make extra marks on them or damage them or something like that. But now there's this other option, which is that we can get a set of those digital images that represent, that, that are replicas of every single ballot that was cast. And actually count the votes on those images. Now there's some things we need to do like take a, a random sample of them and compare them to the paper ballots, the matching paper ballots to make sure that the set of images we got are the real ones. But there's actually been some pilot projects counting votes that, from these ballot images. And even in the time of COVID, we can actually have a, an online a video meeting and project the ballots one at a time onto the screen and count the votes on them. And in, in scrutineers, we've been testing that and trying to figure out the best ways to do that so that if a community wanted to count their own votes, they theoretically could get a hold of these ballot images and or a candidate that had suspicions about their own race could bring their volunteers back together and say, let's count the votes and see if the, if the count was accurate. So we were talking about legislation and one of the things that I'd really like to see is if, if we're not yet ready to get rid of these electronic systems altogether, that we at least um, make, sh make sure that immediately after the election, the ballot images are available to anybody that wants them so that, that we can count them, so that we can count the votes. Yeah, is there, and would that be 
you said that would be something that ought to be done federally and you know state by state to require it yes but it they can be released now in fact dane county wisconsin which is where madison is publishes the ballot images on their website after the election and anybody can download them and then other places if you ask for them you can get them in some places it's free to get them or some places might say give us a thumb drive to put them on and and then you can have them and then other places try to charge a lot of money for them. Um, so, and there's actually been a lawsuit related to this going on in Florida now because in, unfortunately in some places in the country there are problems with um, election offices deleting the ballot images in, even though legally they're required to be saved for 22 months after a federal election. So that lawsuit has been trying to make sure that, that they get preserved in Florida. Um, so, so even though it's not required now for the ballot images to be released to the public, and that's something that um, I think needs to be part of election reform legislation, it is within the purview of election officials to allow them to be released. Okay, interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's something that I think if anyone's listening, you should, you know, keep that in your, in, you know, one of the policies that, you know, because I feel like the only way you know you're going to get politicians to kind of make these changes is if people start talking about it. So we got to start getting people to talk about these things. Uh, and so then I guess we've just gone through a lot very quickly. So is there anything else that we didn't touch upon? You know, we, you think we should talk about? Sure. Well, what I always like the most to talk about is what can people do? Because I think it's I think so many people are feeling scared and helpless about the election. And when especially if they think about election security, that doesn't sound like something that um, A person who doesn't work in the field could have any impact on and actually there's a lot of stuff that people can do that can have an impact and quite a bit of it is stuff you can do from home. So for folks who are um, staying home because of COVID or disabilities or whatever, there's still a lot to do that can really make a big difference. And we really, we really need thousands of people doing these activities all over the country, which is why scrutineers exist. So let's talk about one really, uh, so we, we gave one example already of photographing or videotaping poll tapes. And there's, um, there's an app that's available both in the Apple Store and for Android called Actual Vote, which is where you would upload, one of the places that you could upload your photographs, or actually they do videotapes too. Um, that's run by a, a group called Democracy Counts, which is an organization that's a member of Scrutineers. So if people wanna learn more about that, they can either go to democracycounts.org or come into Scrutineers and learn about them there. Um, another thing is, another project that we're working on is, notifying candidates for public office, no matter what office they're running for, about the, um, the unique position that they may be in to help protect elections. In many states, if there's suspicious, if there's reason to suspect election tampering or that the election results aren't correct, the candidates are the only ones that have the legal standing, the legal right to challenge that election. So that might, in some places, only candidates can get recounts. And in some places, only candidates can challenge election results in court. But most candidates don't think of this as part of their job when they're running for office. So one of our members at Scrutineers, April Smith, has written a letter she calls the candidate caution letter, which 
tells candidates a little bit about some of the vulnerabilities of our voting systems and and cites elections that are really suspicious for having been tampered with electronically. And then it asks the candidates not to concede an election before all the votes are counted and to really to be prepared to challenge an election if necessary. So what what so what does that mean? What's the call to action for people who are not candidates? It's to take that letter and send it to candidates who are running for office in the place where you vote. And you can send it to lots of different candidates. You can send it by US mail, you could fax it, you could email it to them, or if there are in-person events that they're doing, you could take it to, to them in an in-person event. So um, that is, let's see, can I give you, do you do show notes? Can I give you the link to that letter? Yeah, yeah you can send it notes? to me, I'll, I'll post them up. Great, I will do that. So that's another thing that people can do. And then there are, there are, Becoming a poll worker is also a really, really important thing. And there's a, an, an effort that we're teaming up with called the Poll Hero Project that's specifically recruiting high school and college students um, to be poll workers. One of the reasons that the election that the primary election in Wisconsin was such a disaster is that they had to close a lot of polling places because they didn't have enough poll workers because they're Traditionally, poll workers are older, retired right. people and who are at too high risk for, for COVID right now. So the Poll Hero Project has been around for less than two months and they've recruited 16,000 young people to be poll workers around the country, which I am so impressed by. Yeah. Um, they're at pollhero.org and you can go sign up through them and then they'll get you the information about how to apply to your local elections office. It's a paid position being a poll worker, though it doesn't pay much. Uh, you learn a ton from it. I've done it before. It's fascinating and really important. And then um, Scrutineers is actually going to be providing supplemental training for poll workers both if they sign up through Poll Hero or, or if they don't and they don't have to be young people to know um, to kind of keep an eye on elections while they're working the polls from an election protection standpoint. Because the, the training that people will get from their counties doesn't cover some of the election security and voter disenfranchisement issues that 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 poll workers are in a in in a position to be able to notice and often do something about. So so that's that, that's kind of a two-part thing is become a poll worker and then come to us and get supplementary training about what to look for while you're you working. Know, what are, I was going to ask, uh, I mean, the, the training, you know, a quick training, you know, what are, what, what can a poll worker do uh, that, you know, can help uh, with election security? So one example is I was just listening to a court case that's going on in Georgia. I actually had to leave before it was over to come do this with you. That's trying to um, get their new statewide electronic voting system not to be used this fall. And many of many issues were being discussed there. One of which was that was emergency paper ballots, which in Georgia, and I'm actually not not sure this is something I need to look into whether this is everywhere or I know that it's not just Georgia, that there are emergency paper ballots that are to be offered to voters if the machines are the voting machines aren't working or if the lines are longer than I believe a half an hour wait time. So something a poll worker might do 
who really cares about making sure everyone gets to vote and kind of is willing to stand up for the voters is to know is to really be paying more attention than their supervisor might have suggested they do about how long the wait times are to see whether it's time to start handing out emergency paper ballots that's so that's one example yeah. of something someone might do uh, one of the things that also can happen at the polls is peep is poll workers getting overwhelmed especially when there's high turnout, which we're expecting everywhere this year. And so kind of cutting corners because they're trying to catch up, not because they're malintentioned or anything, but like I, I have seen it happen where a poll worker will look at the, at the list of who's registered and say, oh, you're not on there. And they just, it was right there and they didn't see it. So we need people who like care passionately enough to, to look carefully and make sure that they're doing everything they can to make sure that everybody who is qualified to vote gets to vote. Great. Yeah. So I think we're, you know, we're running out of time now. So is there any, any, any last remarks, last message? Well, I just want to um, invite people to come to scrutineers.org and join us and learn more about all this stuff and things that you can do, connect with other people in your community who want to protect the elections. Um, we also do presentations for organizations. So if anyone here is part of a group that they think would be interested in learning more, you can reach out to us through our website as well. And follow us on Twitter at Scrutineers US. Great. Yeah. If you send me those links, I can put them all up. Fantastic. Yeah. So thank you so much, Emily, for that was really fascinating. I think this is, I mean, this is like literally our democracy we're talking about. So it should, you know, literally is really important. <laughs> Thank you so much, Max. Yeah. Thank you for caring and having me on and asking such great questions. No problem. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that as interesting, fascinating, important, relevant, whatever the synonyms are, as I did. So just a couple things. Uh, make sure to follow the show on another progressive, another progressive podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be posting the sources and the links to all, everything Emily mentioned for scrutineers.org and the different poll sites and the different ways to get involved in ensuring fair, secure elections. So make sure to follow and like on Facebook and Twitter and check out those sources. Also, just subscribe to the show. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening. And yeah, have a good week. Mm-hmm.